Welcome back to episode 17 of the NP Dude. This is Jeff, the NP Dude, giving nurse practitioners a voice. And that is our voices, my voice, your voice. Everybody gets a choice here to have something to say. So use me as your mouthpiece. Give me those questions. Give me those comments. Give me ideas for shows. What you guys want to hear about, I want to hear about. So keep the things rolling to me. And I got a couple good ones today that I that I've just kind of... Um, uh, kind of came upon me relatively quickly, and, and this is kind of a spur of the moment drive home uh, show. And I wanted to talk about a couple of these things that came up just today, just just today. Kind of, kind of the first thing this morning. A couple of them were really early in the morning. You nutballs are still listening really late. I had somebody in Germany listening yesterday. How cool is that? Germany, right? Uh, the China thing. I, I still see a couple of those popping up. I think those are scammers. But uh, Germany, that's that's kind of cool. Um, getting a really great response to the show. You guys are doing a great job on Facebook. I'm getting a couple sh- shares here and there, so keep the sharing going. That's really how we're going to get it out there. Um, if you like the show, like it from my my uh, website and share the page in Facebook. Share it on your homepage. Share it to your friends. Share it to groups. Share it to anybody. If you see something that's valuable, tell tell your friends about it. Say, hey, this isn't necessarily just for nurses, but this guy's got something to say, and, and let's support him by sharing his, his uh, work out there and getting it out there. So I appreciate appreciate you guys that are doing it. You guys are doing a great job. So of the things I want to talk about today, there's one that I could talk for hours on, um, but I'm going to save that one for last just because I don't know how long I'm going to talk on it. I may break it up into two shows if I have to, um, or maybe I won't even touch on it. But the, the first one I want to talk about came in and is an email, and I'm not going to use names because I don't want to get anybody in trouble just in case things get out there. Uh, but I do want to get... Um, not specific on the 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 uh, particulars of that instance and in that email, but I want to get into the topic because it is important, and, and we see this happen as nurse practitioners all the time, and it puts us in quite a quite a situation, and that's incident two billing, and everybody out there has heard of incident two billing. If you're in school and you haven't heard about incident two billing, time to start looking it up because it's good to be knowledgeable on it so that you can protect your ass when when someone's trying to take advantage of the situation and. Um, is maybe using your your credentials inappropriately. Now, incident two billing, for those of you that don't know, and I, I imagine most people do, is what Medicare, Medicaid, and most of the insurance programs have agreed that because in their eyes we're not valued as much as a physician, we bill at 85% of the rate of the physician for doing the same work. Sounds fair, right? Perfectly fair. Absolutely not fair, but that's what they've they've decided is is fair. And the only way you can get around that is if you bill incident to the physician's plan. And then you could bill the whole visit at 100% because in reality, it's what, what, and I hate this word, but it's the physician extender. Think of a, a PA. And, and the PA is under the control of the physician, and you're being seen as a follow-up, and you're not changing the plan at all, and all you're doing is really just monitoring and making sure you're an extension of the physician at that point. And that's what it means to be billing incident to the physician. Now, there's some rules about it, and in the email that I got, you are absolutely right on the rules, um, and that's my understanding as well. Now, here's, here's how I know about incident two billing. When I was in school, I researched this because I was trying to find an angle at one of my clinical sites on how to justify bringing me in and how much money I might be able to make for him. And I was trying to figure out a way, a loophole. The lawyer in me was like, okay, let's find a way around this incident two billing so that we can get 100%. And I realized there really isn't one. So here's what it is. When you go into... Um, 
of, of practice and there's a physician that is your collaborative or not it doesn't matter what kind of state it is um, but if you are working with a physician and the physician saw the patient first established the plan and it could be in a previous visit and this is where the, the emailer was a little bit off they do not have to be in the building for incident two billing if the plan was established originally by the physician and they're there for a follow-up and there's no change to the plan now so here's the example um, you see this all the time in specialties and subspecialties where the physician is the one that the, per the person wants to see they don't want to really see a nurse practitioner or a PA on the first visit they go there for rheumatology for example they get put on methotrexate for their rheumatoid arthritis they get folic acid and they're told to follow up in you know two or three weeks or four weeks or whatever they use and you can see my NP for the follow-up so they come in on in week four, they see the, the NP and they say, uh, no, everything's doing great. I'm not having any symptoms. Everything's resolved. It's getting better. Let's just, and, and the plan is we're going to just watch it and come back in another four weeks. The physician does not need to see that patient for that visit. And technically, you can bill that incident too and get 100% of a 99213 or whatever your billing code would be for that, for that CPT code. Now, the difference is, is that if you, for say example, they are still not getting better and you add in a steroid, oral steroid, put them on prednisone and uh, the prednisone taper for a couple weeks, whatever. Well, I don't know what they do in room, but assuming that's what they do. And now I've altered the plan and I would have to go grab the physician and tell the physician, hey, we're switching the plan. Come on in the room, say hello, agree with my plan or don't agree with my plan, and let's go forward. And then that gets you back to incident two billing. But if the physician's not in the office for that change of plan, then you get billed at 85%. And it gets billed through the nurse practitioner at that point in time through your NPI number and that's where you have to have all of your credentialing done with the insurance plans so that you can bill directly through uh, yourself. Now if you've never been credentialed and you're working somewhere then something's a little bit fishy and that would scare me to be honest with you. If it were, if it were me and I was working in a facility that, that uh, did not credential me I would be in the process of finding the office manager, hunting them down, and saying, let's get this credentialing done so that I can bill appropriately because I do not want to be committing insurance fraud, Medicare fraud, Medicaid fraud, potentially getting fines, potentially getting jail time, potentially getting a lot of headache, losing your license, all that great stuff, right, that goes along with insurance fraud. Because right now, if you are doing that and you're billing incident two, for everything and the physician's not in the in the facility or the physician's not checking in and re revamping for the plan uh, that's an issue that's a big deal uh, and to me it's if it's on your NPI number it tracks to you now you're signing the notes and if they're modifying your notes somehow then you're committing just blatant fraud <laughs> if somebody's changing your note to put a different signature on it that's fraud and if you're complicit to it and you know about it and not turning it in to the proper authorities especially if it's Medicare and Medicaid that's a big deal so I would be having a heart-to-heart -heart discussion with people saying look I've worked really hard to get my license and I do not want to lose it because of someone potentially committing fraud whether they believe it's fraud or not does not matter it's what the government says is fraud we've talked about that before that de facto it's it is what it is not what you call it
So I, I hope that answers the question. You're 99% right in there. The only thing is, is that the physician doesn't have to be there if you don't change the plan. Uh, but if a physician isn't there and you're billing incident two and you're seeing new patients or you're seeing acute visits, which are new issues, new plans, you can't bill incident two for those. And I've seen offices where they do it and they get away with it when I was doing clinicals. And I, you know, I was a student. I wasn't going to say anything. But if I worked in that office, you bet your sweet dollar I'm not going to lose my license over somebody billing and losing a little bit of percentage for me to lose my entire license. That's a, that's a, that's a non-argument right there for me. So I hope that answers it. If it doesn't, um, man, I, I don't know what to do. Respond back to me. Um, if anybody else has any advice on what to do with somebody that is um, billing incident two when they're really not billing incident two, if you've had this issue and you've handled it in the past in a political way, I'd love to hear it. I just don't know any good way around it because you're creating work for somebody. And, and this is where I'm going to go into a little bit of a segue on, on work, right? And this goes for anybody. And this is a management thing. When I was managing projects and I had to um, submit drawings or something to a government agency, government agencies typically hate work, just in general. And whenever somebody gives them work, they hate you. And as a, as a designer and as an engineer dev developing plans and submitting, and you'll see why this matters here in a second. When you submit those plans to somebody, you're generating a problem for them. Now, here's what I always do, and this is management 101. If you are creating a problem for someone, you need to alternatively provide them the solution. Otherwise, you won't like the solution you get. So if you provide the pain and then immediately take it away by giving them an option, then you're good to go. Now what I would do is I would always call, this is just my management style, and you'll understand how I apply this in the office as well. I would call a government agent, whoever it would be, a city engineer or something like that, and I would give them a heads up and say, look, we're going to be submitting plans on this. What's a good time for you? And I would bend over backwards to take away the pain for them. And I would submit the drawings and I would schedule an appointment on their time to go meet with them, to go through it so that I could make it easier for them to say, yes, I approve this. I'm taking away their pain. Now, when you do things in your office, if you are creating pain for your employees, your staff, or the physician you're working with, or the office manager, in particular, we're talking about the office manager here, right? Or the credentialing person, if you're giving them pain without an option to help take away the pain, you're just a pain in the ass. And you will get, you'll get a black mark on your record regardless of whether you are doing intentionally to be that way or not. You're trying to be helpful to the office, keeping them out of trouble, but you're creating work for somebody that is already very busy. So it, here's what my recommendation would be. Think about what you can do to help the credentialing process. If you otherwise like your job and you want to get credentialed, start asking the question about, hey, can I have the applications for the credentialing so that I can get them filled out for you so that we can help get this done maybe a little bit quicker? And just do it that way and pick and choose. Okay, what are the most, most frequent insurance plans that you're seeing? Maybe the top three and start with those. 
so that you can at least get those three credentialed and get them underway. So I guess I would I would start with that. Do a little investigation. Don't call the hounds out on him yet and, and try to get anybody in trouble because that's not going to be helpful for anybody. But you also need to bring it to your, their attention because this is being brought to your attention as an as an issue, and and it should be it should be addressed. It really should. So don't create problems for people unless you've got a solution. That's a, just a basic management 101. Um, and it goes same with your staff. Don't don't create problems for them, and you know without a solution, and and you know being helpful to them as well. Sometimes you can't help that, but you just try to think, put yourself in their shoes, and what would make it easier for them. So that's the the first issue that I wanted to talk about today. The second one, and this is I'm still getting tons of contract questions. Just seeing people on Facebook all over the place with you know contract terms, how long they are. Um, non-compete clauses and just a ton of this stuff and I just I don't want to get into them too much because there's been a, a bunch of them out there that I've just kind of you know added my two cents to and uh, I, I want to reiterate that when you see an extreme case especially if you're like on Facebook and you say man my, my terms are really punishing compared to what other people are having you probably want to call a lawyer because you're gonna get somebody in your in your pocket that's just gonna say Look, this isn't right, or this isn't enforceable. Don't worry about this. They can't really do anything about that. Go talk to your employer after you get that opinion from your attorney, and maybe even a letter that says that you know, according to the contract as written, these provisions are no not enforceable by law, and um, it is not you know, to talk to your employer and renegotiate them. Um, so when, when you're in, in, some of you may be listening to this now and saying, oh, okay, I know what he's talking about because we were on Facebook talking back and forth for hours uh, over the last couple of days. Um, that's my advice to you is get the lawyer and, and get, get that assurance that, you know, this is not enforceable and it sounds really hokey. So if you got something that sounds hokey, it probably is. Most of the state's contract laws are essentially uh, common law, and and it's they can be different, but most of them are pretty much the same. So you might have a little bit of like, uh, you know, your your, your um, restrictive covenant or your not compete covenant not to compete. They might do the blue pencil test. I think I've talked about that in the past in previous episodes. Some of them do that where they cross out the things they don't like in blue pencil. Other ones, like Ohio, say, yay, you signed it. You signed it. Even if it's overly restrictive, they're very, 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 very conservative to try to keep the agreement as agreed. It's your fault. You shouldn't have agreed to it. Next time you'll do better. And that's kind of Ohio's take. So it just depends on the state with respect to those things as far as restrictive covenants are concerned. So you might get that difference, but the rest of the contract is going to be a contract, and they're all pretty much the same. I mean, they just are. So I wouldn't freak out about getting an attorney if you feel comfortable you want to go talk to your employer, and that's the the bigger question is, do you want to frustrate the employer and get a bad reference, not have the ability to go back there? Do you, you, know, do you feel undervalued and you just want to renegotiate the terms of the contract? Um, you know, if you've got, you know, this and the one, and I'm not going to say who it was, but it was, it was a recurring, automatic recurring um, contract, which is allowed. That's not not enforceable, right? Those that can be an enforceable contract, but if you've got a termination that is very specific to only a certain part of the year, that you, you know, you're essentially an indentured servant by fact de facto, right, that, then that's not really a, a enforceable contract. 
So I, I just I find that very difficult to believe that you can't get out of that one. So go go talk to a lawyer, get out of it, and and just try to renegotiate or or just tell them you know what I'm going to resign, and you can I dare you to sue me because you're going to look like a jerkwad if um, if this contract makes its way in front of a jury. But that doesn't stop anybody from suing anybody. Anybody can always sue somebody. So keep that in mind that you know just because an attorney tells you yeah it's not enforceable doesn't mean you can't be sued. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to spend a lot of money fighting it. It just means that, you know, ultimately you'll probably win. But you're going to pay a lawyer to do all that, and you're going to pay for expert witnesses and everything else that goes along with a, with a lawsuit. Is that really something that you want to get yourself into? And that's the question you got to ask. So I think I beat that one up. Now, the other one I want to talk about, and i got a little time because I'm at 16 minutes, 30 seconds or so, is, um, and I get this question all the time, and I, I, when I'm talking to people, and I don't tell anybody in my practice, any of my patients, none of them know I'm an attorney, period. I'll, I'll tell them I'm an engineer because most people won't ask me for free engineering advice, but a lot of people will say, hey, schedule me in two weeks to follow up with Jeff. I need to ask him some legal questions. And I'm not getting paid enough to do that. And I don't have malpractice insurance for that, so I'm not doing that. But I get told all the time when I talk to people you know, that, that are in my life, um, you're a lawyer? And I say, yeah. And, they, and the next thing is, is, man, I always thought about going to law school. And then I get the next question, which is, what's it like in law school? And so I think it's a good time to just go and talk about what my experience was for um, some of law school and what it takes to get into law school and what the reality is of, of the practice of law. And um, because I've done some of it on the side and I've done some of it in-house for other for firms, uh, for engineering consulting firms, and uh, so I have a taste of it, and it's not something that I have a passion for, so I'm not, you know, I don't want to practice law, but what does it take to get into law school? What does it take to do this? What do you have to do to be successful? And and, and I told all the people that I went to, to um, master's in nursing school with that any one of them, I am very certain that they were as intelligent or more so than I am and are more than competent to do the same things that I've done. So if you have a master's degree in nursing, you are capable enough to get into law school and go to law school. Now, whether that means you should or not is a different question. When I was an engineering student and I was almost done with engineering school, I said to myself, eh, I think it'd be cool to go to law school. So I took what's called the law school admissions test, okay, the LSAT and I didn't prepare for it at all. I thought, man, I got great grades in engineering. Uh, you know, I'm pretty smart. I could do this stuff. You know, I was kind of cocky. And uh, I did horrible on this test, right? And um, it's good enough, uh, bad enough that I probably wouldn't have gotten in anywhere I had applied. And so I said, man, screw it. I didn't want to do it anyways. And I went and worked as an engineer. And I did that for about a year, year and a half. And then I got the bug again. And it kept itching on at my at my brain. And I And I decided to buy a bunch of study practice books and I took probably 20 some practice exams and and got better at them and got better at them and 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 ended up taking the test and did fairly well on it and luckily because they actually some schools will average your results which puts you at a big disadvantage at those schools some of them they'll disregard the first test and just say it was a fluke you know we'll, we'll use your second score and other ones will do like a pro rating 
where they'll say like the first test is maybe one third of the weight and the other one's two thirds of the weight and they'll come up with their own rating system on how well you did on this LSAT and um, so I, I did good enough on it that I got into five different schools and I went and I was going to go to Duquesne I was living in Pittsburgh but but I was going to go to night school so I could stay working at the engineering company I was at and turns out I'm glad I didn't I went to Akron instead they gave me a full ride right well, I, I got this full tuition scholarship to go to Akron, and uh, not to brag about that, because I realized about a week after being in Akron that 95% of the people lose their full tuition scholarship. What they did was they took all the scholarship money and front-loaded it so that almost everybody in the, the entering class got a scholarship, and then they would lose it by their first year. It was done. So then you'd pay tuition for the second and third year. So that's kind of the LSAT and the application process. Now, what you do to get in, it's kind of like the NCLEX, right? You take the NCLEX as a national exam. Well, you do the LSAT as kind of a national exam, and then you register with what's called the LSDAS, and it's the Law School Data Assembly Service, something like that. And it's basically like CAQH is for your credentialing, but it's for your um, law school information. So you do all the stuff, you submit it all to this organization, and then you apply to the different law schools, and they, they, they pull the information from the LSDAS. So it's a pretty easy process for applying to law school. It wasn't a big pain in the butt. You know, some of them required an essay. Uh, I think most of them did. And uh, really, they just want to know your story, kind of like the... the um, uh, how to get your dream job. You know, they want to know your story. Same thing there. And some of them had a, an interview. Most of them didn't. And uh, you, you either got in or you, you didn't. And it was pretty easy. I didn't think it was that difficult to get into law school. But they do a pretty rigorous screening process. So, you you know, it's it's a lot of steps. And you got to want to do it. And uh, if you do that process, then, then it, you know, and you do okay, you're probably going to get in somewhere. So... What was the process once you're in school? So you get to school and, you, and you're sitting there, um, you know, two weeks before class, and they say, "Here's your reading assignments," and you're like, "Holy crap! I got more books in the first semester than I had in my entire Master's of Nursing program." Not kidding. Um, and so you have this huge stack of books, and you're like, "What the hell am I doing?" And and it's nervous, right? You're what? The, I just don't know what to expect. Well, here's the difference between all of my other education in law school most education in secondary education is or post-secondary education is didactic learning and that's where they basically stand up in front of the class they tell you what you need to know you go home you reinforce it with homework problems or additional reading and then you go in and you take a test and you barf it up that's didactic law school does not typically do didactic they do what's called Socratic. And some of you may know what Socratic method is. And if you've had really awkward and weird professors and just weird classes in college, sometimes you'll see that they use the, the Socratic method to try to get people to learn on their own. It's more self-directed learning. So what they do instead is they assign the reading ahead of time. You read your assignments. You take a crap ton of notes, hoping that you get the big picture of whatever it is and the fine picture in some cases. Then you go to class, and then they call on you in front of 150 people, embarrass the crap out of you, scare the crap out of you, embarrass you some more, make you look like an idiot, and they do this over and over and over again until you're numb to it. 
and you get called on and you'll say stupid things and people will snicker and laugh because it's extremely competitive and then you'll have other people that'll you know like feel sorry for you and give you encouragement and you'll make some great friends and you'll have some good enemies and all that good stuff goes with it too because it is super com- competitive once you're in there it was not a big deal to throw a stone and hit a valedictorian I mean I, I, I th- and I'm not a good thrower I could hit a you know out of 150 people there's probably 80 valedictorians in that class and uh, I was not a valedictorian. I was middle of the road kind of guy, and so I, you know, I lucked out getting in. I felt, but in, re- in hindsight, I think I did a good job. So um, that's what a little bit of difference between how the classes go. Now, the quantity of workload is significantly different. I haven't had anything as difficult as my first year in law school ever in any of the other things that I've done ever in my life. First year of law school. You will st- you will spend. Let's start with this. First year of law school, pretty much everybody takes the same classes across the country. It's pretty much the same thing. You're going to have contracts. You're going to have torts. You'll have a civil procedure, which is basically how to file briefs and how to file pleadings and the rules and when you need to file and Rule 11 sanctions and things. You're not you know frivolous lawsuits and all that stuff, right? So it's the procedural part of it. You'll have a whole class on that. Then you'll have um, a legal writing, uh, legal research, property, and you'll have this times two for two semesters for the whole year. Everybody gets the same thing. And so you, you that, that was full time. And there were three-hour classes each. So it's like six, five, six three-hour classes, which a three-hour class in law school is about a nine-hour class in master's in nursing. The amount of effort that's required is it difficult? No, it's just time. It's it's you got to be able to put the time and energy in. So, so what I would do typically was I would get an assignment and I would read that night immediately. I get the assignment, I would read it that night, so that way it was fresh in my mind. Okay, I got to get this done. I got to get it read. I got to get it figured out. And for every three-hour class, which is basically two one and a half hour classes where I went, but it's a three hour class, so you get three hours a week of instruction. I was spending approximately twice that reading for that class. At least twice that, probably more than that my first semester. So you can add it up and figure out, okay, if you've got you know 15 hours of class, in-class instruction, I was spending 50 to 60 hours a week reading for my classes, plus my 15 hours of class itself. So it's a ton of time. It takes a ton of time. Now, I'm a slow reader. Maybe you're faster than me. That, that would be great for you. Um, but I was a slow reader. It took a lot of practice to get quick at it. And not knowing what to, to really hone in on took some time. And it takes you almost that full that full year to really hammer out what what you should be looking at in a case and how, how you um, analyze the case and, and where it fits in the big picture. And that, all that time doesn't include your outline time. Now, outlines when you get into law school are like a huge thing, right? How do you memorize this massive amount of information? Because you get one exam. You don't get four exams in a class or a midterm and a final. You get a final. You get an exam, period. So you have 15 weeks of instruction, then you have a week of exams at the end. And you don't get to take anything with you. It's all rote memorization. So you take a book that's 700 pages long that you literally re- read the foreword, the preface, the, the table of contents, 
and every note, footnote, end note, um, comments, conclusions at the ends of the sections of the chapters, you read everything <laughs> in those books, right? And I, one of these days, maybe I'll take some pictures of my notes that I did in my books because it's ridiculous. And, you know, you read everything. And you got to know it. you got to know it in and out. So you would make outlines to break it down into its most basic forms so that you could at least memorize it in some kind of rational format. And so you usually start those about week five or six in the semester. So you build up enough information that you can start outlining. Otherwise, you won't know how to set up your outline. It's just frustrating and wastes time. So you kind of you kind of get used to outlining and breaking things down and breaking it apart and making it simpler into smaller, smaller and smaller pieces so you can memorize things and making mnemonics and stuff that you do in nursing school. But in nursing school, it's just the workload wasn't nearly as much as what it was in law school. So I encourage people if you're interested in doing that and go down that path. I get this I get people asking me all the time, "What's it like?" It, it's a it's a great process. The first year was just hard. The second year, you kind of figure it out a little bit, so it's not as bad, but it's still a lot of work. And by the time you hit your third year, you're in stride. You got this thing figured out, and you're ready to go and, and take the bar exam and, and just, just start pounding that out. So what does it take once you graduate? You got your schooling done with your, your law degree. You got to take the bar exam, right? I spent two and a half months straight, 10 hours a day. I'm not kidding. 10 hours a day, at least five to six days a week for two and a half months straight, not working, not doing anything, just studying for the bar exam. And I had a stack of texts from my bar review class that was about four or five feet tall that you essentially have to memorize. It's insane. But when I finished and passed the bar exam, I felt like there was literally nothing I could do, um, or nothing that I couldn't do. I could do anything at that point. I was like, this is it's easy. What do you want me to do? I'll figure it out. We'll get this done. And, and it was um, not an ego boost. It just showed me that it's possible, right? The level of effort that you can put in as a human being and come out the other side. Man, how, how cool is that shit? So that's, that was my experience, and I had a blast with it. It was really hard. I made some great friends um, doing it, and I still talk to a couple of them and like to see what they're doing and, um, and just the, the different different pathways. My best friend from law school is a prosecutor, so I get to talk to him every now and then about that stuff and uh, some, some neat stuff that he's doing. And uh, so if you guys need contracts in Ohio, I got a guy that does it on the side. Let me know. Um, he's in Summit County, Portage County area. So let me know if you need a lawyer. I got a I got a good guy, but um, yeah, it's just it was it was a great experience. But it's not something I would even contemplate if I had kids. I, I it was before kids, man. I, there's no way I could have spent that much time away from family and and being that stressed out, plus working, plus doing everything else. Now my second year of law school, I switched and went from day day school to night school because I got an engineering job in the summer. I was like, I hate being broke, so I got an engineering job, and then I transferred because I knew I lost my scholarship, and I ended up getting uh, getting a, a regular day job, and I was doing night school. So I did night school. You know, I worked 40 hours a week, and then went to night school, and still, you know, it, it seems like, oh, it's only night school, but it was still four three-hour classes every semester. I mean, it was a lot of work, and I did it through the summers, too. So it was, you know, two solid years straight, and... Uh, 
you know, so it was it was a hard thing. It was it wasn't easy, but it was really enjoyable. It was a lot of fun, and I realized pretty quickly that there was no desire to sit at a desk and help people with a legal legal dilemma. It just didn't really, it, you know. And I know there's there's people that are attorneys that are that are out there practicing that that may or may not listen to this. It's not a shot to you. It's just not for me, man. I just it wasn't what I wanted to do. I give a lot of respect to people that want to help people in the legal field. The problem to me is that you got to kind of be kind of a slime ball if you want to eat. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of skinny, well-intentioned uh, lawyers out there, but the the ones that are that are eating good are you know doing some slightly shady, questionable things. And it's, you know, I don't, I just don't want to practice that way. I don't want to be that kind of person. I'd rather, you know, that's why I went into the, what I did. So I hope this has given some insight into what it's like to be an attorney. What, um, oh, that was what I was going to talk about, what it was like on a day-to-day basis being an attorney. It's so freaking boring. It really is. You know, I mean, I used to get contracts dumped on my lap at, you know, noon and the, and, you know, vice president of the company saying, Hey, I need comments by seven o'clock tomorrow morning. You know, and I had my day job still doing. And so I'd take contracts home all the time and read them. And what a pain in the ass. It just, it was boring. And it's neat to know the ins and outs of it when you catch somebody. And, you know, I was negotiating with people that that had, you know, 25 years experience as an attorney working working in, uh, you know, large manufacturing and, and other companies. And here I am talking about UCC code section 2-205 mirror image rule or whatever it was, you know, and, and, and they're like, what is that? And, you know, cause they'd been out of it a little bit since they learned it. And so that was kind of fun, but, um, the majority of it was pretty boring. Not, not real fun for me. So I hope this is enlightening. If this isn't a good show, tell me, I want to hear about it guys. I, I mean, I'm getting a lot of great feedback. I just, I'm, I'm still waiting for somebody to say you're full of crap. I just really want somebody to tear into me and say, yeah, you're full of it. And you know what you're talking about. Um, that just means that people are listening, and maybe I am. I don't know, but um, right now I'm, I'm just talking about what I find interesting and the, the issues that I'm seeing pop up throughout the day. I still would like to do a, um, um, an illness of the day question and maybe throw that in. I'm just not sure how to do it, and I don't want people to think at my work that I'm using people from, from my day job to come up with hypotheticals because I don't want to get accused of HIPAA violation. So I'm not sure if I want to do that. I might just get it, um, like a, like a, uh, like a, uh, you know, I don't know, some kind of a study app or something and just give out hypotheticals and see if people want to do it that way. Kind of like they're studying for boards and just do board type questions. Maybe, I don't know. We'll see. I'm still thinking with that idea. If anybody has options or ideas for, for format for the show, if there's anything I can prove, I want to hear feedback. I want to hear what's, what I could do better and uh, some more specific questions and things like that. So don't forget, you guys can uh, like me, share me on Facebook. You can also send me comments on Facebook. You can message me on Facebook. I've had that happen as well. I've also had um, people email me, jeff at com. You can also get me on iTunes. Don't forget, you can tell your friends, hey, if you're riding in the car on vacation and you want to, you know, get some exciting information about nurse practitioners and this crazy guy named Jeff, don't forget to tell them I'm on iTunes. So keep the information flowing, keep listening, and I appreciate it, guys. Talk soon.